Conversations with Orbita, a podcast dedicated to helping healthcare and life science organizations reimagine the patient journey with conversational AI. This is where automation meets empathy. Elise, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for taking the time to join us today. Elise is our VP of Customer Success and Practice Lead for Pharmaceuticals and Life Sciences. The topic of this conversation is really the social dimension to how we think about virtual system technologies in healthcare. We're in an interesting time, to say the least, here in the beginning of 2021. We just capped off probably the most challenging year for the human population in the last several decades. One catastrophe of the last year is that 14 million Americans lost their employee-sponsored health insurance since February of 2020. And even before 2020, there were a lot of challenges with respect to ensuring that our populations have affordable access to healthcare. These were only heightened with the pandemic and economic spirals. So what we want to explore today, in particular in the area of pharmaceuticals, is what we can offer to these underserved populations to help them have better access to medications that they need throughout the rest of this pandemic and beyond. So I think there's two prominent examples we'd like to cover in this episode. The first is a common ailment that many people struggle with, including myself, which is asthma. And the other is in the realm of oncology, where patients often need numerous medications and financial support. So I really want to get your perspective, Elise, on the problem of access to treatment and medication and where we have opportunities to apply some of the technologies that Orbita and others offer. So let's uh, jump right in. So um, Elise, one of the things we like to do on this podcast is, you know, talk about our own personal stories. If you listen to the first one, you know, Christy and I went on for a while about what got us enthusiastic about virtual assistants in healthcare and and what we're doing here at Orba. Um, but I'd love to hear some of your stories. I know you got a, a few of them, and I'm sure it'd be interesting to the listeners. Sure. So I really became interested in communication and healthcare over 10 years ago when my older son was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia. And during that time, there were really not that many outlets to learn about leukemia. So, and especially the form he had where there were 500 children in the U S diagnosed a year with it. So it was considered rare specific to pediatrics. And then within that diagnosis, there were multiple different subtypes and your protocol was completely different based on the subtype of the leukemia that you, that the patient had. So that made the understanding around the treatment, even that much more complex at the time. I think there were Two, three children on the floor that had the same diagnoses that my son had. So there were literally two parents I could talk to if I could find them in the break room to try to share information and figure out what we were being told by doctors at different times. Uh, how long ago was this, Elisa? Um, it was 11 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Lots happened. (laughs) Well, what's really funny is that so much has happened in this space, but so much hasn't. So I think now, you know, 
healthcare is in a place where they're adopting adopting digital technologies to assist with education and to really help onboard patients onto different treatments and but at the time then there was nothing we were given a book it was extremely outdated I would go on the internet at night very late because I couldn't sleep and I was living at the hospital with him. So it was lonely. I was looking for information around what was going on, but everything I was finding, to be perfectly honest, was really scary because at the time he had a 48% prognosis, which he's a survivor now. But, you know, as a parent, everything I was finding on Google was very outdated. It was very outdated and it all led to like a horror story about what his outcome would be. So I made the decision not to look at Google anymore. I mean, I made a very personal decision that I wasn't researching any information on him anymore that the doctors didn't tell me or that I didn't get directly from a company that was providing the treatment. That's how I got into conversational AI and healthcare is wanting to change and shift the paradigm and how patients and caregivers were communicated to and educated um, around different treatments so that other people wouldn't experience kind of just that feeling of isolation and not understanding what was happening during treatment. So for me, conversational AI just really felt like this prime opportunity and this magic tool that's been missing to educate patients and caregivers when they have time to look, when they have time to understand and take in the information and be receptive. Like I always say, reach them when they're ready. The majority of patients and caregivers, when there's an oncology diagnosis, they're not ready for the first three weeks to a month. So for me personally, the first two weeks I was in such shock that I actually felt it's almost like comparison to you feel like you're in a bubble and you're floating above the ground and you can see and hear everything that's going on around you, but you're not understanding anything that anyone's saying. So when I think about Charlie Brown's teacher, if anyone remembers like (laughs) the wah, 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 but you never hear what she's saying. (laughs) It's the same exact experience. You're hearing wah, 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 but you don't actually understand anything that's being said to you by doctors and nurses and social workers because there's So at least, um, yeah, first of all, uh, congratulations to your son and to you for his recovery. It must've been incredibly uh, traumatic uh, time. And, and, and unfortunately not one that is rare in, in our in our society. I think last year, 1.8 million people were diagnosed with cancer in the U.S. alone, right? And considering that was in the midst of the pandemic, you know, it, it, it sheds light on uh, how many people are struggling with what you struggled and considering you know, your education and your access to resources, how difficult it was for you, uh, what, how difficult it must be for that other 1.8 million people and their families who are going through this right now. You know, so timely and accurate access to information is critical, right? And, would it, and not relying on the general web search engines as your source of truth was, seemed quite wise to me. But it's, it's more than just timely and accurate access to information, right? These, these, these conversational AI-powered bots offer another dimension that isn't available in just static search engines, right? It's a, a combination of automation, access to information, and a little bit of empathy, right? A lot of empathy. 
Again, I go back to 2 a.m. in the morning, right? You're by yourself. You're either a patient who has that diagnosis and you're actually like staring your potential fate <laughs> in the eye in the darkness, wondering, you know, what's going to happen and having a million questions, but also having no one to talk to about them. And, you know, a chatbot really helps number one, to ask those questions that you're afraid to ask doctors. While my son was in remission, my dad was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. And then I was helping my, my parents on that end advocate and understand what was happening in his treatment journey. And the complete difference between what I felt comfortable asking a doctor and what my parents felt comfortable asking a doctor was completely different because in their eyes, like you don't ask any questions. You just listen, you do what they say, you take the notes and you, you walk away. But for me, I wanted to ask a million questions and I needed to be educated as much as possible to have the confidence to even be able to help care for my son. Something like a chatbot or a voice skill, it's not just providing answers to questions, but it's also providing confidence. It's giving a patient or a caregiver the confidence they need to then talk to their, their physician or their oncologist or their nurse practitioner to be able to have the confidence to ask the questions that they otherwise might feel too stupid asking. There needs to be better communication to number one, educate, number two, provide confidence, and number three, provide empathy when that patient needs it at 2 a.m. You know, every patient who goes through cancer treatment or any loved one who's a caregiver to someone with, with cancer patient, they just need it. You know, you need that sensitivity and empathy. So not just, um, you know, it might just be, how are you doing today? <laughs> and, you know, even by sentiment analysis, there's an opportunity when a chatbot's checking in and asking, how are you doing today? Based on the words that are provided by the user on the other end, mm. the next day that chatbot might be able to provide certain messaging based on what was said the night before that can help either encourage that patient or provide additional emotional support outside of just your typical treatment protocol. Right. I mean, the idea isn't that the bot is replacing, you know, the human touch, but um, to close a gap between no support <laughs> at all um, <clears throat> and the full-on dedicated um, advocate, right? And somewhere in between for health systems um, and the individuals struggling with whatever the condition are. Um, we don't expect bots to be a replacement, but they, you know, even if it's doing it in a, a friendly way, a check-in, hi, Elise, um, you know, how's it going? Do you have any questions? Here's a quick update. It provides a real, really a 24 by seven access to information in a way that, in a format and an experience that has a little more empathy or a lot more empathy to use your phrase than what people can expect from any of the uh, kind of traditional digital experiences. And I think that's the main takeaway here. Thank, first of all, thank you for sharing that story. There's another um, use case. Um, I can't remember if I've shared in the past on this podcast, there are more mundane, let's call them, use cases of just people dealing with chronic conditions. And in my case, growing up, I had asthma. I know you have a story in this area too, 
But one of the things I learned even at a young age is that I could make my medication last longer if I didn't quite take as much uh, treatment. But uh, not knowing at the time that if I didn't adhere to it, I might not have the best results. And I had no one to guide me on that. And I wonder if you could uh, uh, wax poetic on that scenario. (laughs) Sure. In the past, I've also had a son who had asthma Um, It was cold-induced asthma at the time, which then turned into just frequent asthma. You know, over time, after, you know, he was diagnosed with asthma, he was given an inhaler, sent home. Um, You know, we ripped the inhaler out out of the box, threw out the box in the directions like many people do, and he started using the inhaler. And, you know, a month later, he had a checkup and nothing had changed. And what we came to learn was that neither of us had a clue how, how he was supposed to use the inhaler. I had never used one. No one in my family had used one. And so for us, I always was like thinking to myself, oh my gosh, if there was just a way when we got home that we had visual use of understanding and someone coaching us through how to use the inhaler that first week, you know, like every morning when he woke up and was using the inhaler, there could be a voice coach who was directing him through the proper use and even counting, you know, counting however many minutes it is that you're supposed to hold your breath before you exhale after taking a puff. But that would be so helpful to either have a chatbot where you could click on a video right on your mobile device. This is key for teens, right? They're all on mobile devices. This is all they use all day for any form of education or information. If they could easily access a chat solution, or even have the doctor, you know, you receive an SMS text notification when you get home from the doctor's office, and it provides a link to a chatbot that's going to onboard you onto disease education around asthma and frequently asked questions around asthma, and then incorporate videos on how to use your inhaler correctly. One thing that is important to note is that there are many disparities in how people actually can care for and manage their asthma. And what we know through um, having worked on different solutions in the past is that there are disparities socioeconomically in whether patients are able to adhere to chronic disease treatment plans. And what we know is, is that asthma patients potentially do not adhere to their treatment protocols because asthma inhalers are very expensive. So if an asthma inhaler costs $240 and you do not have insurance um, or you have a very high deductible insurance uh, plan, you're paying out of pocket for that inhaler every single month. So there have been insights around the fact that multiple people in one household share an inhaler. And therefore the inhaler is not being used properly because it's not being used every day. They could use it, run out, not have money the next month to pay for one and then not use an inhaler for another month. But the outcome is obviously more illness around the symptoms of asthma, if not treated correctly, and also more ER visits. So more ER visits due to asthma attacks that are happening because of the maintenance or lack of maintenance around the disease and the condition. Right. In the end, it comes down to managing that chronic 
uh, condition and um, with a support agent, an assistant that can advise, guide, coach on the proper use of that treatment, that medication, uh, the expectation and actually the data suggests that uh, more adherence reduces the ER visits to your point and uh, um, general uh, health and welfare. So, yeah. yeah. Take one step forward even, <laughs> Um, when we think about insurance, you know, think about how much most the average American does not know about their insurance plan, or they do not understand when they're choosing an insurance plan, which deductible option they're choosing and what the outcome is of having an, a high deductible plan. So not only can conversational AI be used to educate around how to use or onboarding or frequently asked questions around disease, but, you know, we're finding that it's extremely useful in educating patients and consumers around insurance and insurance plans and insurance options, and even having calculators right within a chatbot that can be utilized to determine what is the right insurance plan for my family and, or for me as an individual, and what can I afford if I do have a chronic illness as I'm signing up for this plan. I don't know if you saw that webinar or not, or have ever met her at a conference because she's at a lot of them. And Heidi Floyd was on the panel and she's like this amazing, I mean, just amazing, extraordinary woman who is like a 10 year breast cancer thriver. She's had stage four breast cancer. And so she's actively involved in the community. She was speaking at a breast cancer conference, I think in Chicago a few years ago, and they were talking about innovative technologies, digital technologies to help, you know, breast cancer patients. And a woman stood up, raised her hand in the audience and said, I have to go to a library to check my email because I don't have internet at home because mm -hmm. I can't afford it. Mm -hmm. And so Heidi's point was, what are you doing for those people? And how are you able to use conversational AI for those people? And I think it's an interesting point. Like, what is the answer mm -hmm. to that? There were studies done around this ASBA scenario where the suggestion was that the majority of people, regardless of their economic situation, have smartphones. So however right. they have them, they have them. But then Heidi's suggestion was that actually isn't the case. So how are you helping those people and how can you reach them with digital tools? Yeah, I'm just looking up some stats, uh, at least in this country, 96% of the American population has a cell phone of some kind and 81% have a smartphone. So, you know, that's wow. almost 20% of the population that wouldn't be able to use the features of a smartphone and a virtual assistant delivered over that. You know, I think as you get into the underserved population, that statistic probably goes way up. Right now, trying to uh, decrease drop-off in filling out a registration form for their financial assistance program. Uh -huh. So they have they're seeing this drastically right now, which means it's happening all over pharma. How do you help to enroll patients right now in financial assistance programs in pharma? Because they either A, follow into the donut hole. Uh, mm -hmm. They're on like a form of Medicare and they fall into the donut hole and cannot afford the prescriptions until 
the other coverage kicks in. Elise, you mentioned this concept of the donut hole. And for listeners who might not be familiar with that, just a reminder that what the donut hole is, is in Medicare drug plans, it's a coverage gap that occurs once you reach a certain spend limit on coverage drugs. So in 2020, that spend limit was $4,020. And in 2021, it's a bit more $4,130. But once you've gone past that spend, you're in that coverage gap or that donut hole. You might be qualified for Medicare, but there's a lot of stuff that Medicare does not cover that many people, once they get Medicare, they still will sign up for and pay for a supplemental insurance program. Anthem is a popular one. But when you think about the cost of, say, cancer treatment, I mean, my dad, I can tell you point blank, he had stage four cancer. My parents had Medicare. They also had really good supplemental insurance. And because of the cost of all of those out-of-pocket medications, there was a significant amount that they still had to pay for prescriptions for him before they were covered by that secondary insurance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if you cannot afford that and you have any drastic, you know, you, you go through any significant treatment, say an oncology treatment, those costs are through the roof. So the average person who's on Medicare cannot afford that, which means then they can't afford their treatment. But there's a lot when you think about like painkillers, there's a lot of painkillers that have to be paid for out of pocket that aren't necessarily covered by insurance. So there's just a lot involved with how do you help people get onto financial financial assistance programs they're not even familiar with. Is there a place for technology and technology-based solutions to support financial assistance? Uh, and fundamentally, everything we're talking about comes down to the, the ability to fiscally manage your own health care. The, the variability in this country of access to affordable health care would suggest that anything that could be done through technical-based solutions would be helpful, Right. And I know you've worked on a project with a, one of the Orbital clients uh, specific in this area. And I'd be interested to hear your perspective on how this particular uh, business is uh, approaching that problem. Sure. So what we're seeing right now with many of our partners is their concern about making sure that they are engaging with patients, their current patients who might have chronic illnesses and be on a, a certain re uh, treatment regimen ensuring that they understand that they have other options available to them. So one thing we're seeing, obviously, like you mentioned, is there's a major shift in how people are uh, currently being covered by insurance. So all of those that have lost their employer covered insurance are now moving to independent insurance. So we just had open enrollment in the fall. Many people might be moving to a high deductible right now because they can afford less. So that means a decrease in cost for insurance, increasing your deductible. So what pharma is really pushing for right now is trying to communicate as easily and as efficiently and quickly as possible to their current patients. Look, if you can't afford your current prescription, your monthly prescription, your, your diabetes injectors, or your current psoriasis or rheumatoid arthritis prescriptions, which can be upwards of $1,300 a month, 
there is a financial assistance program available to you. So one thing we're doing with one of our partners right now, uh, we just created and are deploying a voice skill for them in which they are able, a patient is able to enable this voice skill to quickly ask and get answers to questions around copay, questions around financial assistance, questions around uh, their current insurance and whether or not uh, that current insurance is going to cover the costs. And based on a series of back and forth questions that are being asked between the skill and the patients, the skill will then redirect that patient to either a nurse on call program to help with questions and or a specific financial assistance agent to quickly help and get that patient either enrolled in the financial assistance program or help them understand how they can apply and are they are qualified for a copay program. And what we found through doing uh, working with the partner on this initiative is that there are many people who are completely unaware of financial assistance programs. There are many people who have insurance and they think because I have insurance, I don't have I won't be qualified or enabled to receive financial assistance from a pharmaceutical company. And that couldn't be further from the truth. So for instance, when we think about Medicare and the donut hole, there are a lot of people who have supplemental insurance who don't understand that they could actually receive financial assistance for that hole right now. They think I have insurance, so I'm not gonna be able to qualify. But what pharma is really trying to help with right now, while many Americans are struggling, is to, to communicate to them and educate them of the different opportunities they have to get financial assistance. So we've talked about a couple of different things. We've talked about the role of assistive technologies in supporting under-resourced populations in managing their medication in an efficient way so that, that they're not cutting corners um, at the expense of their own health and using virtual assistive technologies to support that. We also talked about access to financial information and how uh, pharmaceutical firms are using technology to support patients in making decisions, financial decisions about how to affordably get access to the medication and treatment they need. We also talked about the uh, limitations that are intrinsic to our um, system where um, not everybody has access to technology. And I uh, wanted to pick on that one, Elise, with you for a second, because I think we can state unequivocally that we cannot reach everybody. If you're completely off the grid, you don't have a cell phone, uh, you're isolated, this, this, it's impossible to reach everyone in those circumstances. We can point to the stats mentioned before that a large percentage of the population owns and carries a smartphone. Close to 100% of the U.S. adult population has some kind of phone, cell phone or otherwise. And uh, while often we talk about virtual assistance delivered over, for example, an Amazon Alexa smart speaker, that's maybe a, a even smaller percentage of the population who would be able to access that kind of application. But one of the things that we often talk about at Orbita is this concept of um, omni-channel and multimodal, which is just a fancy way of saying, reach the individual on the device that they have and are able to access. 
and uh, ideally create some consistency in the experience of that virtual assistant so that whether the user is using an Alexa-powered smart speaker or a smartphone or even talking over a conventional phone, they have same access to the information, the same virtual care support. Maybe um, describe how um, you're seeing the industry adopt some of these multimodal omni-channel solutions. Yeah, that's a really great point, Nate. So uh, we're working with another partner on a similar initiative around access and affordability right now. And we this is really uh, focused on a senior population. So it is for a drug which has many indications with a pa- patient population that is primarily over 60 years old. And so there's a lot of research going that needs to go into understanding that one size does not fit all. So just because someone has, just because the majority of a certain population might have a smartphone, that doesn't mean that they prefer text. Just because a certain population has email, that does not mean they prefer to be notified over email. So something that we have really learned along the way and tried to work with our partners on is understanding that you need to be able to reach your patient's where they are on the channels they frequent on the devices they prefer. And that's really where the omni-channel experience comes into really being important. So if you are working on an an initiative for a population and you say, we want to build a chatbot, well, you have to understand that most people over 60 don't trust chatbots and, or they are scared by chatbots potentially based on who the demographic is. So Is it great to have a chatbot with frequently asked questions on your website to support a population? It absolutely is. However, you also need to have other modalities in place to assist that population. So while you might have a chatbot, you have to always be thinking beyond the chatbot. You have to be thinking about if that patient stops, you know, if they're filling out a registration form on your website for financial assistance or for copay and they drop off and they abandon that form, how are you following up with them? So if at the beginning of the form, you capture a bit of information, their email address, their phone number, their preference to receive communications from your company, and then you hit, you have a button that has, says save and continue, and then they continue filling out the form. And if they've opted in that they agree to receive information from you or be notified by you, well, then you're able, if that patient never completes the form, or that patient has a question and then they leave and they abandon that experience, you can then email them because they have told you they prefer email. You can text them because they've told you they prefer text. And that's where that omni-channel multimodality experience really comes into play. Are you contacting your patients or contacting your population of users to let them know number one, financial assistance is available. Or we realized you're at 11 months of your prescription. Do you need to get a refill from your physician? Or January is about to hit, or open enrollment is about to hit. So if you can be using email and text and a chatbot and a voice skill, really working in unison with one another, then you're ensuring that you're reaching the demographic that has a smartphone, but you're also reaching the demographic that only has a landline and maybe they need to be using IVR. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or you're reaching the demographic who has the desktop and prefers email and doesn't trust text messages. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The key is uh, just offering the flexibility 
um, not just to our partners in that case, but to the, the, the end user themselves. To what extent, I mean, the whole, there are two central value propositions of virtual assistants. One is that they uh, automate important uh, workflows, right? So if it's about supporting a uh, patient population and being able to do it at scale, uh, the idea is digital technology, of which uh, these virtual health assistants are an example, will create some efficiencies there. The second one is uh, really almost an accessibility use case, right? So the 24-7 access to a virtual assistant, you're not waiting for uh, the office hours to be able to, to reach a, a human that might have the answer to your question or be able to support you. So that's a, and, and then the general accessibility of a bot that has a more natural conversational interaction metaphor. We know that uh, healthcare providers are often early adopters of technology. It's not universally the case, but is there a role for these kinds of technologies, virtual assistant technologies that are clinician facing that could help uh, inform or impact uh, what we've been talking about here? Yeah, absolutely. So we actually have seen that HCPs were earlier adopters of conversational AI than patients for various reasons. It wasn't even necessarily that they were earlier adopters as pharma um, pharma teams. They were earlier adopters if they were focusing on the HCP for the digital tool than the patient. Obviously for HIPAA concerns, ensuring that whatever conversational AI platform they were using was HIPAA compliant, which ours obviously is. We have initial SOC 2 security, SOC 2 type 2 security, um, but there's a lot to play and a lot of concerns around HIPAA compliance and ensuring that if you have a patient solution, that there's AE detection and reporting in place a whole nother conversation we can get into. But when we think about the HCP specifically, I think most in the industry are more than well aware right now that the majority of in-person face-to-face meetings between a sales rep and an HCP halted in March and have continued to not take place. Besides the fact that there are many, many physicians and specialists out there that are not even in the office right now. They're doing telehealth out of their homes. So even if sales reps were allowed into an office right now to talk to and educate and inform an HCP on a new indication or a change in a label or a new drug uh, that's about to launch, they have to find unique ways to be doing that right now. And one of the ways that has been extremely successful and uh, more prevalent is the use of conversational AI for those reps to talk to, educate, and inform and make aware physicians on some of those things. So when we think about using digital tools for sales reps to help to talk to physicians, communicate with them, and or physicians to get very quick questions answered, which what we have heard heard is that during telehealth appointments, digital tools are crucial right now that a physician can quickly on a sidebar um, be able to get information while they're talking to a patient. But what we're finding is that physicians also are asking uh, about patient resources. So something that's often overlooked is the fact that pharmaceutical companies are 
also tasked with helping physicians to understand about resources that they can educate their patients on to better help them. So whether that be resources around their new diagnosis or whether that be resources around community groups for support in their community for their diagnosis or whether that be financial assistant resources available to them if they cannot afford their in their prescriptions and their treatments. Chatbots, voice-enabled solutions are all really great ways to try to reach a physician to provide them with the education around these things to provide to their patients. So financial- how, how do these, can maybe just for the listeners, how can you, let's net this out. How does this, how do they manifest for the ACP. So the ACP is in their exam room, either with a patient or just seen a patient. What, how does the use case play out? Right, so usually what happens is they're gonna use that digital tool uh, when they, you know, if you're ever at a doctor's office, they're 80% of the time now, you're not facing the doctor, you're facing mm-hmm. the back of a monitor, which is facing the doctor because they all have to use EHRs right now. So they're filling out information. Um, they could be filling out information while they're filling out that information on their computer. They might have a phone near them or another monitor near them where they can be looking something up. Something else that's really interesting that we're starting to um, strategize around right now also is the use of conversational banners. So is there an ability to have a mini chatbot, if you will, will, in a digital ad on the EHR? So while that HCP is on a platform, they're filling out information, John Doe, age 55, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, a banner can pop up to the right-hand side that not only suggests that maybe you should use brand X to prescribe John Doe for that rheumatoid arthritis, but also do you have a question about brand X? And you can ask and answer a few questions right within that conversational ad as an HCP while you're filling out the information and or talking to your patient. So that's a whole nother level of conversational AI beyond your standard four or five channels. Is it the case now that HCPs have to go to multiple destinations, multiple portals, depending on what kind of information they're seeking? My sister's a doctor. She uses Google. She uses um, PubMed and uses a few other resources on her day-to-day job to look up uh, information to support her, you know, her care. And then, uh, but it's, some, you know, so one of her complaints is that just go to a lot of different places and sometimes a lot of different portals. Um, you know, how do we handle the fatigue associated with access to the endpoint, you know, whatever that might be? I, I you know, are, would a brand be offering yet another application for providers to use? Uh, how does this manifest? So I, I think eventually it's not going to be another application. It's going to be the application. So I mm-hmm. think what we're going to see is as people adopt and the industry adopts conversational AI at a greater speed, it's not going to eventually be another place. It's going to be the place they're going to go for information. So, you know, it's very cliche to go back to the scenario where, you know, we talk about this is just like when websites were first built and people all of a sudden didn't know anything about websites and they were scared and then they went there for information. 
And then there were apps and people didn't know about apps and they didn't trust them, but then that became a mainstay for information. And then you can say that that's now conversational AI and it's a little cliche in our, you know, our industry. I think many companies say this, but the reality is I believe conversational AI and conversational search is going to replace websites. It's not going to tomorrow, but I think in the next four to five years, everyone's just going to be asking a question into their phone and getting an answer, or they're going to be clicking, they're going to be linking on a chatbot and having direct conversations. And they're not even going to be typing those conversations, right? Just like how our technology is all, you know, every one of our chatbots has a microphone uh, icon and you can, you can voice your question into the chatbot. And I think we're going to see that that is going to become the way we all get information. That's my prediction. Mm -hmm. So remember that in 2025. <laughs> One of the things we've learned, at least in the uh, pharmaceutical space, is these virtual assistants, particularly those that have what we'll call a more natural language interface, um, need to have in place some way for recognizing what are called adverse events, right? This idea that um, a patient may say something that suggests something uh, negative has happened. Maybe you could talk about the importance of these kinds of events and the technology that's behind them. Sure. So in the past, pharmaceutical companies have been very leery about deploying conversational AI solutions because of the concern around adverse events. And what happens if a patient asks a question and the pharmaceutical company misses that there was potentially an adverse event being addressed within that conversation? This goes very much to what was happening in social media a few years ago when pharmacy pharmaceutical companies started launching community pages for a specific pharmaceutical brand. There was a lot of legality around how someone could monitor within the pharmaceutical company that social media page to ensure that adverse events were being caught. So what is really crucial, I think the only way a pharmaceutical company feels comfortable having open field text within a chatbot. So actually having a good experience. That's not this basic generic FAQ chatbot, which any company can do right now. Let's just, you know, there are a lot of chatbot companies out there and it's all button driven experience, but let's be honest, a lot of them are very subpar and they leave people with the feeling that they don't like chatbots and they don't help them because they can't actually ask the question they need to ask. They're relying on buttons to right. lead them down a path. So the reason why adverse event detection is so important is it allows you to have open field text opportunity within a chatbot for your patients and or your HCPs. So your patient can ask a question. They might log on to your website. They did a Google search, brand X, rash, and that SEO, they, we help with the SEO that's going to take them to the landing page on your pharma page with a chatbot. They can immediately say, I have a rash two hours after taking brand X, is this normal? And immediately our platform will reply with, 
you mentioned rash. Do you believe that you might be experiencing a bad? So you don't want to call it an adverse event to a patient, obviously, because they don't know what that means. Nine out of 10 times, that's a clinical term. So if you reference it as a side effect, you can then help them to determine if they might be having a negative side effect, which you then have to address and report to the pharmaceutical company. And our conversational AI solution allows you to do that through AE detection. But uh, detecting a possible AE is the first step, right? You know, the thing is, um, you know, how do you capture that event and um, how do you report it? Um, so there's quite a lot that's wrapped around that. It's almost like your insurance. It's almost like the AE detection module is the pharma's insurance policy to be able to use open field solutions. <laughs> because they can feel confident in knowing that there's not risk there because our modules, our uh, backend is going to be able to detect any adverse event and escalate it as necessary to the right audiences within the pharmaceutical company. That's great, Elise, thanks for that. I think uh, what we're seeing here is a real expansion of capabilities around things like this adverse event detection module. Um, in in the pharma industry and actually more broadly, we have use cases for these kind of natural language processing capabilities that are relevant in any situation where a patient is being asked to uh, interface with uh, a bot like what we power at Orbita. So I think we'll definitely see some progress this year and I look forward to having more conversations with you about this. Thanks for joining us today, Elise, and we'll catch up with you next time on Conversations with Orbita.